More than 80% of borrowers took advantage of the COVID-related pause in federal student loan payments. What did they do with the money they didn't have to pay? Instead of them paying down other debt, like a mortgage or an auto loan, we see them actually take out more debt. So we see increases in their balances on their mortgage or on auto loans, as well as on credit cards. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at what happened to the federal student loan borrowers who took advantage of the payment pause that was part of the government's response to the COVID pandemic. The CARES Act of March 2020 placed a moratorium on student loan payments that saw multiple extensions over a span of more than three years. That moratorium is coming to an end as part of the debt ceiling legislation that President Biden signed last week. So what happened when federal borrowers no longer had to pay their student loans? Michael Dinnerstein, an assistant professor of economics in the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics, and Constantine Yanellis, an associate professor of finance at the Booth School of Business, decided to take a look at what that did for borrowers' finances and what the government can learn from it. Well, Michael Dinnerstein and Constantine Yanellis, welcome to The Pie. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So you just basically jumped right into a vat of molten hot lava with this one. Uh, student loan debt, uh, nothing controversial about that these days. I'm uh, used to that. It comes with, uh, with the territory. You know, I, like, <laughs> uh, I, I like doing things that are important. And, uh, you know, if we're going to have impact on um, uh, policy, you know, it makes sense to tackle uh, important, complicated and often controversial issues. Fair enough. Well, I think most folks are probably aware of what's been happening with this since the start of COVID, but uh, let's give a quick refresher here. Michael, what did the federal government do for student loan borrowers at the start of the pandemic? So if we can remember back to March 2020, it was a complicated time and things were changing fast. And so the federal federal government did a, a variety of things, but as part of the CARES Act, which was passed uh, quickly in March 2020, the federal government suspended its collection of payments on student debt. So basically, if you had uh, loans that you took out uh, to finance your education from the federal government, then uh, usually you were used to making payments every month, and the government basically suspended your need to make those payments. So you could uh, stay current on your loan and not be delinquent, but just not have to pay it. And originally, this was in well, at least announced as a short-term uh, policy, and it has had various horizons, um, but at the end of each horizon so far, the government has extended it. So uh, three years later, we are still in a payment pause where people with student debt uh, still have no required payments, but that's expected to end, or the current announced end date is coming up soon. Right. And basically what they're waiting for is the for the Supreme Court to decide a case on the Biden administration's plan from last year where they moved to implement a loan forgiveness program. Right. But that is separate from what you studied from in this research. That's correct. So this uh, 
policy happened in March 2020 under the previous administration, the CARES Act. Um, That said, I'm not a legal expert, but some of the considerations in the Supreme Court case for the Biden administration announcement could be relevant here. So, Constantine, uh, take us back to those those early times, uh, the before times, uh, March of 2020. Um, what were the economic arguments in favor of the student loan moratorium and perhaps against as well? I try to uh, block out uh, March uh, 2020 uh, as much <laughs> as uh, possible from uh, memory. But let me uh, grip my teeth and go uh, go b- back there. Essentially, uh, the government wanted to do something in response to this unprecedented economic uh, shutdown. So we saw unemployment uh, increase by uh, the largest amount in a single month since the Great Depression. So this was really uh, catastrophic. Typically, during downturns, the government will uh, engage in various policies to try to increase consumption and provide insurance to uh, individuals. And these can take the form of stimulus checks or things like uh, unemployment uh, insurance, which are typically extended during downturns. Now, if we expect a shock to be transitory, like was the case in March 2020, I remember at the time, I, like many others, very naively thought we would all stay home for three weeks uh, and then the virus (laughs) would be over and everything would go back to normal. But if we have if a tra- only yes, yes, <laughs> um, uh, you know th- this policy we study initially was set to last three months. Now it's lasted more than three years. But the basic thinking was that if we have a transitory shock, stopping debt payments uh, or providing uh, other short-term liquidity could be much cheaper than policies like stimulus checks or unemployment insurance. Essentially, what you're doing is trading government uh, debt for individual debt. All right. So then, Michael, describe for us what you set out to find here. Was it as simple as the question, you know, did the moratorium work? Did it help students? Or was it something a bit broader? More broadly, we're trying to look at what happened. And then after that, kind of interpret, does that seem to help or hurt people? Um, And so a lot of the arguments, well, the arguments for the policy could be divided into stimulate the economy, as we just talked about, or potentially shore up people's financial situations so they don't default on obligation debt that they already have. So, you know, you have a mortgage and all of a sudden someone loses their job and it's going to be very hard to pay for it. Um, So you might not collect on the student debt at the same time. Um, So we were curious first whether any effects are coming through the first channel, which is kind of spending more, versus the second channel, which is more shoring up your own financial situation, because we think those are kind of two different stories. And so we were uh, particularly interested in looking at the effect of this payment pause on a variety of outcomes that are related to both consumption, like spending more today, as well as uh, families' financial positions. And we find kind of very interesting results that I don't think we necessarily expected. So then, Michael, what did borrowers do with that money when they didn't have to pay down their loans? Did they spend it? Did they save it? Did they pay down other debt? What? Yes. So first, we see, as predicted, with their student debt, many of them no longer pay once they're not required to. 
And uh, they don't go delinquent kind of by definition because the government's not saying you have to pay. And their credit scores go up. All that sounds pretty great. Yeah, right. How they act based on that is we see instead of them paying down other debt, like a mortgage or an auto loan, we see them actually take out more debt. So we see increases in their balances on their mortgage or on auto loans, as well as on credit cards. And so these in total add up to a fairly large increase in the amount of debt that they have that's not student debt. What do you glean from the fact that borrowers started borrowing more because they weren't having to pay student loans? We had two hypotheses. So the first one was that, well, you now actually have more ability to borrow because your credit scores just went up. They paused the payments and now more banks are willing to lend to you at least relative to the group of people who did not get the payment pause. And so perhaps there's some loans that you didn't previously qualify for that you do. The second hypothesis is that, no, you've always had the ability to take out those loans, but now you just decide to do more of that. We find it's the latter story. And even that story is a little complicated. Why would you, with more money in your pocket, because you're not having to pay for the student loans, take out more debt? Well, it could be that you make a down payment and all of a sudden you have the ability to do that because you have this extra money you're not paying your student debt with. Or it could be I have a few like the first or second monthly payments are going to be pretty big. And so now I know I can cover them. So we think that this, we call it liquidity, but this extra cash that you have might make you more able to use the credit that you kind of had access to throughout. Hmm. So if the use of credit went up, Presumably, if borrowers weren't paying because of the freeze, their balances on their loans went up as well, right? Because interest kept accruing. Is that factored in here? That's right. So are you talking about the student loans? Yeah. There's a little bit of nuance here. Uh, For borrowers, in general, balances were going down, as they tend to do just as you get closer to the end of your loan. But if, again, we compare the borrowers who had the pause versus the ones who didn't, then the ones whose debt was paused, you're right, they were not making payments, and therefore their balances kind of stayed high. Now, interest was not accruing during this period oh, okay. uh, when you don't make your payments, but you were not reducing the principal either. So the, the balance stays high. So the increase in debt that we're looking at is mostly new debt. It's about half student debt and half other debt. And this is all measured from borrowers who saw a payment pause relative to people who didn't see a payment pause. So the student debt is not new debt. That's reflecting the fact that people who had the payment pause were paying down at a slower rate, whereas the other debt is largely driven by new lines. We mentioned earlier the Biden administration executive order that moved to cancel federal student loan debt. That came in August of last year, as we mentioned, now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Constantine, what effect, if any, did that have on borrowers who were still also still under the moratorium? Did it do anything to them? We find uh, essentially no uh, effect from that uh, announcement. And we can rule out even uh, very small effects of uh, the announcement. Um, And that has a number of very important uh, implications. So there are a lot of arguments that one can make for and against 
student loan forgiveness. But one common argument is that loan forgiveness will essentially stimulate both consumption and, uh, and investment. So people will have uh, more cash on hand, they'll be able to spend more, they'll be able to invest in their education or housing for uh, retirement. What our results uh, suggest is that if we want to focus on consumption, then we can do this in much cheaper uh, ways by just making payments smaller. And there are a number of ways that that can be done in the student loan space. So for example, you could just extend the duration of uh, loans, right? Make loans you paid off over 30 or 40 years rather than 10 years. That means a smaller monthly payment. You could also uh, increase the utilization of income-driven repayment plans, which tie borrowers' payments to their um, uh, income. So our results uh, suggest that these alternatives, making payments smaller, would have much larger effects on consumption relative to forgiveness at much lower cost for the federal government. Interesting. You think about the fact that uh, I think a lot of the opposition to student loan forgiveness programs centers on the idea of, you know, hey, they made the decision to borrow money and now they're responsible for paying it back, right? Like any financial transaction, you owe, you pay. And it seems to me that this research could fuel that fire because a natural reaction would be, wait a minute, you didn't pay your loans and then you went out and spent and racked up more debt? Wasn't the point for you to be able to afford rent and food? As an economist, I try to shy away from these arguments of uh, you you owe something or these moral um, (laughs) uh, uh, arguments. Less in relation to our paper, I think the strongest arguments regarding uh, student loan forgiveness have to do with the regressivity of uh, the the policy, meaning that for every dollar spent on loan forgiveness, most of that dollar goes to upper middle class and upper class individuals. And that's for two reasons. Uh, So one, people who go to college and can acquire student debt earn more than people who don't go to college. Uh, And also people who spend more years in college, like doctors, MBAs, and lawyers, earn more than people who spend fewer years in college, like dropouts or uh, associate degrees um, holders. So to me, that's the strongest argument against uh, student loan forgiveness. If the government is going to spend $1.6 trillion, there are a lot of very poor people who need a lot of uh, help, and a lot of them uh, didn't go to college or didn't even finish um, uh, high school. So if we think about redistribution, student loan policy is not the right way uh, to uh, think about it. Now, there are very important questions to think about uh, in terms of student loan policy, namely, how do we take care of those borrowers who are really struggling? Because a lot of borrowers did take on too much debt and they have low uh, incomes. And it's not a sense of they owe that uh, money or some moral obligation. It's a sense of how do we take care of those borrowers who need help without making a very big transfer to you know people like my MBAs who are wonderful people, but who earn a, a lot of money. And, you know, I'd be hard pressed to argue that the government should be giving me money or um, the, my students earning six figures. So that's really the question. Uh, how do we provide targeted relief to those people that really need uh, help without wasting limited resources? You do hear the argument, you know, that there is uh, possibly an entire generation that is putting off buying a house, even having children, because their student loan debts burden is so enormous. And then that then affects the entire economy, doesn't it? Exactly. So let's even think about like specific to 
the pandemic, right? So we see people take out a mortgage or uh, or a new auto loan, and indeed that makes them you know have more debt than they had before, and so there might be this sense in which how did how is a pause on one debt leading you to have more total debt? But there could have been all sorts of kind of needed changes related to the pandemic for which having an, a new car might be important. So we had people have changes in where they work, in whether they have to go into the office. And so a bunch of adjustments that people make, it might have actually been very helpful if they could have borrowed at the same time to facilitate those adjustments. Of course, we can't really see that directly. So that's pretty speculative. But as you, as you mentioned, there could be strong case for we want people to invest in certain things that require taking out big loans. And by pausing on the student debt, it's a mixed story. It leads to more total debt, but these could be very useful uh, uses of the money. Is there another lesson here that, as we know from retirement accounts, it's really hard to get people to save? You know, the national savings rate jumped in the early months of the pandemic, then it plummeted again to, I think the level is now lower than before 2020. So you can have all the best in intentions that you think people will be able to put some money aside when they're when they have these student loan pauses, but that's just not what happens. That's absolutely right. Uh, it's hard to get individuals to save, and in terms of our results, you know we're we're very careful in the paper not to make welfare statements, and you can view uh, our findings as having a half glass full or uh, a glass half uh, empty. And kind of the, the positive spin on what we find is that, you know, these, these policies worked as uh, intended. People have more cash on hand and they're increasing consumption, perhaps making needed investments, uh, which is really the goal of many of these stimulus policies that were pursued at the, the pandemic. And this goal was achieved at much lower cost. Now, the, the potential negative is that you do see these individuals having significantly uh, higher debt several years um, uh, later, about $4,000 of uh, increased uh, debt relative to borrowers who didn't see the payment uh, pause. And there's a lot of work that's been done by my colleagues showing that household debt can have damaging effects on the economy. It can decrease uh, spending longer term. It can also decrease household uh, investment through uh, what financial economists call debt overhang. So, Michael, what do these results mean for, I guess, the macroeconomy and in particular future decisions about moratoria in the wake of a national emergency, whether it be a pandemic or something else? Um, I assume that there's probably a difference, like whether you do a student loan moratoria or a house payment moratoria, but can you kind of give us a 30,000 foot look at what these findings could mean in the future? Sure. It depends a little bit on what the government or you know we as society are trying to achieve. But I think that our findings show that uh, giving people cash on hand can have a really big impact. And so they can use the cash on hand to borrow more. And we've already discussed you know the pros and cons of that. But this moratoria, whether it's payment pauses on student debt or mortgages, I, I think we show that this is a policy tool that has really strong reaction to it. For future policy, it depends on how you want to guide that reaction, whether you see it's positive or negative. But um, we think this is potentially kind of an underappreciated tool, um, which in some ways we didn't expect it to, to be so powerful going in. 
further is the government might have multiple choices, whether to give out you know, money they don't expect to be paid back. So these are the transfers or just pause payments here. Because we see that these payment pauses are so effective, it's potentially a lower cost way to achieve stimulus or shore up people's balance sheets going forward. Um, so I think it's potentially a tool that has to be harnessed carefully, but uh, it's one that certainly governments uh, should think about at its disposal because it has big impacts. You say you were a bit surprised by the power of this moratorium. I'm curious from uh, either of you what you thought you might see uh, versus what you found actually happened. What were you expecting? My prior going in was actually very different. I thought that individuals would be deleveraging, meaning meaning that they would be paying down other debt. Um, I also thought that they would be less likely to default on uh, other loans like uh, auto loans or mortgage loans. Uh, And that's not what we found at all. I also thought that there might be some effects from uh, student loan forgiveness. So uh, the results of this were surprising to me. But at the end of the day, that's why we do we do research to learn things that uh, we didn't know before. I agree. I thought um, so. We find really interestingly that the people whose credit scores go up are not the ones who borrow more. And so my I had expected they would be the same people. You'd see they can get more access to credit, and that would be the story. And so uh, I was quite surprised that the story is really a, using credit that was already pretty much available. Um, And so I think that leads to economic insights that going forward um, might shape policy. Such as? So these policies, a big element of them is who they target. And so moratoria are very much about who already has debt. Uh, So who, you know, this applies to people already with student debt. And as we're trying to figure out who's most likely to use the additional money to stimulate the economy, for instance, um, it may not be the people who, if you kind of give them the ability to pay back the debts that they already have, that they'll then, and their credit scores go up. These may not be the people who provide the most stimulus. It may be the people who are in slightly better financial positions at the beginning. Hmm. Now, as we talked about before, you know, there are many reasons to target different people. But in terms of the stimulus effect or like increased spending, we're really finding it comes from people who already were in pretty good financial positions. You know, honestly, that really seems to bear out what behavioral economics has been saying for the last couple of decades, right? That people will not necessarily do what you think they will do, that they are not rational in their money decisions. Right. And that's exactly why we uh, we turn to the data to test these hypotheses. So, you know, even though we told you that we had some expectations going in, we're, we know what they're often surprises or our model of how people will act does not bear out. And so that's exactly why we wind up doing the research. No, exactly. And at the risk of uh, talking too much about economic theory and perhaps even overgeneralizing our our results, I think that our results are very much uh, in line with a lot of evidence lately showing that households behave in a hand-to-mouth way, meaning that they essentially spend, many households spend what they they earn. And one mechanism that could explain our uh, results is if these individuals are just um, uh, using this extra cash on uh, hand to make payments on both consumption and other debt. Well, Constantine and Michael, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. We appreciate the interest. Yes, thank you very much. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. 
And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.